IB Talk, the global insurance industry podcast presented by Insurance Business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of IB Talk, one in which we are going to dive deep into what might just be the insurance industry's hottest topic, cyber insurance. I'm Paul Lucas, IB's managing editor, and certainly in the pages of our publication over the last few years, it seems cyber is the one topic that everybody wants to talk about, yet not enough people still seem to know enough about. Uh, Perhaps that's because the risks and threats are constantly evolving. Perhaps it's because the security measures that many put in place can be outdated the moment a new piece of malware emerges or a new ransomware group forms. But also in the last year in particular, it seems like it's an area some companies have moved away from, with larger claims being reflected by a drop in overall capacity. Uh, So where does the market go next? Today, I'm joined by a man who can steer us all in the right cyber direction. He is the National Cyber Insurance Practice Leader at Risk Placement Services, Steve Robinson. Steve, welcome to why we talk. Hi, Paul. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Steve, obviously, we're going to delve into uh, the, the cyber topic in, in just a moment, but let's give everybody a little bit of background on you. Uh, you got your start in the insurance industry working as an agent in the early 90s, I believe. Um, so tell us how you got into the business and, and what it was like being an agent at that time. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, you know, like a lot of people that have been in the industry, as long as I have been, uh, you kind of stumbled into it, right? I didn't major in insurance in college. We didn't have a risk management focus at the university I attended. Uh, and so like a lot of folks, it was a family friend that I knew who owned an old retail insurance agency in the town I grew up in. Uh, and I started working in personal lines as a customer service agent. I got exposure to uh, to that area, uh, sales and, and claims. Uh, and I would say, you know, being an agent back then was a much more manual, hands-on process, right? So we, we processed renewals via paper. Uh, there was literally only one computer in the office. I, I think it was one carrier's rating system, and, and we still use typewriters and fax machines. So, yes, I'm, I'm old at this point to be able to say a lot of those things. Well, I, I was going to ask you, in fact, uh, about the challenges that you, you faced perhaps when you were in that sort of agent role. And it, is that one that you would consider the, the fact that, you know, it, it was that time sort of, you know, before the Internet had really exploded, perhaps, and so on. I, I imagine life is a little easier now, or, or, or perhaps do you think that maybe in some ways that old fashioned way, if you want, was a, a little bit better? I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, certainly technology has helped things. That was one of the, the bigger challenges uh, as an agent at that time was really in, in the agency where I was a lack of dedication to funding for resources like technology to assist in the sales process. So from that perspective, I think today agents have many, many, many more tools at their disposal to help their clients understand what their risks are, uh, to help with proposals and things like that. As, you know, When we were a generalist, I felt like I was good at a lot of things and excellent at nothing, you know, so I think that can be definitely a, a challenge. Uh, and also trying to have in-depth knowledge and understanding of lots of different kinds of uh, coverages for customers can be a challenge as well. And of course, you um, having sort of established yourself in, in that role, you you moved then to across to, to risk placement services and you've been there for the last 25 years. Um, so what brought you across to, to RPS and, and what's led you to, to, to be there for so long? And what do you put your longevity down to? 
Right. Uh, so technically, I've worked with the same firm for 25 years, but only 14 of them have been under the name of RPS. So uh, after a couple of years of the original agency where I started that I was just referring to, I was approached by, oddly enough, the gentleman who taught me the insurance licensing class, and he worked for ISG International. That was our name before we merged with RPS, and he still works here with me today. Um, I, when I you know, went to the firm I currently work in, again, this was 25 years ago, I was hired as a head of marketing. Uh, that was what my college background learning was in. Uh, then I got into operations and eventually became president of the firm um, after kind of working my way through that. Uh, at the time, we had a specialization in insuring high-tech firms all over the country. So it really centered around the errors and emissions piece for computer consulting businesses, software development firms, uh, things like that. Um, we eventually broadened our distribution into wholesale uh, and our growth took off from there. So in 2007, the founder of our firm sold uh, and merged with RPS. And now I can officially say I've worked here under the RPS banner longer than uh, the previous company name uh, from before. Uh, you asked Paul about longevity. I would say um, I've always been really fortunate to be surrounded by a really great team, very family oriented atmosphere here. Everyone looks out for each other. Uh, I was also uh, very fortunate to have a really good mentor who was a principal of the agency that sold to RPS, still talk with him regularly and still consult him on things on a, on a fairly regular basis. Just a great guy. Fortunately, uh, he was not old when he sold the business. And so he's, uh, he's still very much uh, around and available for me and uh, has, has just become a great friend over the years. But also, I would say we've always been very growth focused and we've never steered away from change. So we were among the first to specialize in E&O for tech firms. Uh, and when that coverage began to standardize and competition increased significantly, we adapted a lot by leveraging that expertise and kind of network-related loss to widen our net with a focus on a brand new cyber product designed really for non-tech firms who just happen to utilize technology. And today, that innovation is what continues to drive, to drive our growth. I've always said, you know, if you're not growing, you're going backwards. Going in reverse isn't fun. Uh, I've been here for 25 years because it's still fun and it's still a challenge and we still have a great team of people around us. Well, you touched there, of course, on on your cyber product. And, and as I mentioned at the top, you are now in the role of national cyber practice insurance leader. But how did that end up becoming your niche? Because like you said, you know, when you first joined the, the original business, you were head of marketing. That's That's quite a transition. Right, right. So, so moving from marketing into operations and into uh, management of the agency in general certainly exposed me to a lot more things. Uh, back then, a background in tech made that evolution to uh, a cyber focus, a much more natural transition for our team. Uh, as a leader of that team, I knew I had to become a student of the coverage and uh, even eventually to contribute to writing, contributing to policy form wording, manuscript endorsement writing, things like that. So. As I learned more and our team continued to grow and as the cyber you know, continued to show great promise for growth uh, for the executive lines division of RPS, we needed to give more attention, I think, to the practice in general. Uh, and, and I was asked to lead that charge. And, and let's sort of delve into the cyber market as it stands right now in 2021. Is it, I mean, is it possible that, that COVID has actually been sounds almost horrible to say it, but has it actually been a positive for this sector because it's forced so many people to to look at their coverage with this switch to, to work from home? I wouldn't necessarily draw a straight line uh, between, you know, COVID being introduced and, 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 you know, customers suddenly looking at their cyber coverage more closely. 
So I wouldn't necessarily say that. I would think the dramatic increase certainly in ransomware attacks has really caused business owners to rethink coverage for themselves more than anything else. Uh, it's constantly in the news, as you know, uh, and, and anything that's given that much airtime uh, tends to get people's heightened attention. So now a remote work environment has certainly helped contribute to an increase in claims, I think, as the attack surface has broadened significantly and as a lot of the controls that are typically in place in an in-office environment uh, are no longer there or, or maybe not as disciplined, you know, when, when now you've got more of a remote workforce. And I think at times they also take shortcuts um, uh, in, in security practices when they're at home as opposed to when they're under kind of the umbrella of the, of the in-office um, IT security protocols. And we're talking, of course, about how the, you know, the, the landscape has, has developed within the past 18 months there by talking about COVID. But I'm imagining for the time that you've been um, sort of leading things up on in the cyberspace, um, there's been a lot of change. Can you just tell us a little bit about how the product and, you know, the, the maybe the landscape, the threats and so on have changed from sort of when you first became involved with the cyber aspects to, to where things stand now? Sure, sure. When we first started, Paul, it was really all about data breach. It was about the commoditization of personally identifiable information, you know, social security numbers, credit card numbers, um, health insurance types of information, uh, and, and the commoditization of that on the dark web. So these would look to uh, look for the treasure chests that, you know, that contain that type of sensitive data. They would target those organizations uh, in an effort to gather as much of that as they could and then sell it on forums that look very much like eBay, you know, in the darker portions of the, the, the Internet. Um, and then around 2019 in particular, and in, in, in super high growth in 2020, is when we saw ransomware become the big uh, the big growth area for cyber attacks. And what, what they found was they could you know, with great anonymity by utilizing the demand for cryptocurrency, um, they could execute these attacks in a much quicker, uh, much more efficient manner uh, and, and really bring in larger amounts of money uh, to do that. And so with that rise in ransomware, uh, you know, we saw a lot change in the cyber insurance industry. You know, we saw insurance carriers building entire teams and products around data breach around that loss of personally identifiable information about customer notification, about credit monitoring, about call center services, about all, all of these types of things. At the time, notification outside the limits was a really big deal. Why? Because data breach was the reigning um, you know, cause of threat at that point. And, and there were significant costs involved with the legal and the notification expenses involved with data breach. Um, as ransomware, uh, you know, again, became more, um, widespread. Um, it's not that data breaches went away. They certainly didn't. They're certainly still happening every day. Uh, but now we had a new threat to focus on uh, in addition to that. And with that, I think what we saw was, you know, great changes in an underwriting perspective. And we continue to around what are things that can help prevent ransomware attacks? How can a business be more resilient? How can they get back on their feet quicker and things like that? So, so yeah, the threats are constantly developing. They're changing. Uh, others that I would say is we, we still see a ton of business email compromise uh, through phishing attacks and things like that. Uh, and, and also we've seen a huge spike in social engineering and wire fraud uh, threats. And of course, like you said, the, the, the threats are constantly developing. They're constantly changing. So 
is it ever going to be possible to to, to get ahead here? And, and and what measures can I guess brokers in particular um, be sort of taking to to help their clients to to mitigate these risks? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we we hear this a lot. Are we are we ever going to be out in front of this as opposed to always chasing? And um, you know, it's it's interesting. Cyber uh, as a threat is so much different than the uh, traditional threats of you know wind, water, fire, theft, uh, things like this that have been around since the beginning of time. And so, because they've been around since the beginning of time, while certainly weather changes uh, regularly and things like that, at least there's a great deal of actuarial information and history from which you know underwriters can. Uh, and actuaries can can set rates and can you know have some reasonable expectation of what the year is going to look like. Cyber is completely different because literally the threat itself is changing constantly, uh, as we've discussed. So you know by its very nature, you know someone is is inventing new forms of attacks with new acronyms that you and I have never heard of yet as we speak right now. And this time next year, <laughs> they're going to be the new buzzwords. So that makes it very difficult to stay in front of. And so I think. You know, what we do is is do the best that we can to help our clients with the technologies that we have available today uh, in, in an effort to not be, you know, as far behind. I think we will always, by nature, be somewhat behind. That doesn't necessarily mean uh, that that's uh, a dire threat to the industry as an insurance product. I think there are a lot of things that can be done um, to, to help make this uh, continue to be a profitable area. You had asked some questions about some things that brokers can do to help their clients. Um, I would say definitely uh, they should understand these market dynamics and prepare their clients early. So this is not the cyber insurance market of 2019 or 2020. Renewals have become a lot more technical. Uh, More information is needed and agents really need to familiarize themselves with a lot of the acronyms such as RDP, MFA, EDR, SPF. There's a lot of these things that you know, previously they had no reason to have to know and understand these things. And so they want to make sure that their insurers know that they're going to have to be utilizing much of this in their information security plans in order to even qualify for coverage. We know that pricing will be in many cases dramatically higher. We're seeing that. We're seeing higher retentions. We're seeing coinsurance and even uh, exclusions for cyber extortion or, or ransomware in many cases also. Um, some sectors, uh, such as particularly public entity, education, uh, who don't have certain of these securities in place like multi-factor authentication simply are not going to qualify for coverage in the future. And so I think what we saw in 2021, uh, this past July, was really, uh, I think, the last frontier for, I call it kind of the, the, the last train to uh, <laughs> to lower um, uh, security standards and lower pricing. We saw a big dramatic uptick on this July, and I think next July is going to be even more difficult for for much of that. Um, another thing is I would say don't rely on throw-in cyber coverage that might be included in a commercial BOP and think that your client is, is adequately covered uh, because that's generally not going to be the case at all. There's a lot more risk management resources that are offered by many of the carriers. I would, I would advise agents to educate themselves on those resources uh, to, to, again, make themselves a little more informed. And then lastly, not to be uh, self-promoting, but I would say partner with a knowledgeable resource uh, who has knowledge of the cyber market overall, such as RPS. So, for instance, in our position as a wholesale broker working with uh, all of the markets, uh, you know, I think that does provide a different level of insight as opposed to, uh, you know, only kind of dabbling in this. So I would recommend definitely surrounding yourself with with partners that can really help advise you on the overall status of the market is, is helpful. 
Yeah, and you mentioned there about sort of not accepting um, cyber as just a, an add-on to a policy, that it, it needs to, to be a standalone coverage. Just give us a little, little insight as to, to what's included in a standalone coverage that's perhaps not typically included as part of an add-on. Uh, sure. So, well, you know, when, when we see these just kind of thrown in endorsements, for instance, at, at very low premium or sometimes at no cost or they're baked into the overall cost of a, of a commercial package policy, what we're typically seeing is, is much lower limits. Uh, we're typically seeing, you know, in the business interruption coverages, for instance, for instance, they either don't have them or they're relying on the property section, which might contain exclusions for a network related loss for business interruption. Uh, we're definitely not seeing the more expanded cybercrime areas that, that cyber policies have expanded into. Uh, oftentimes seeing exclusions uh, in areas that, that will not be excluded on a cyber policy. Um, the media, for instance, liability will typically not be as broad in a, like a commercial, um, uh, in a commercial package policy where the GL is relying on personal and advertising injury. Definitely not as expansive as what a privacy liability insuring agreement would be. Um, and, and, and that becomes important because as the definition of what's considered personally identifiable information continues to broaden from a regulatory perspective, which it definitely is, um, it, it used to be, you know, first name in conjunction with um, first name, last name, conjunction with a, an account number, a financial account number, a social security number. And those laws are becoming much, much more broad to include things such as biometric data, uh, preferences, uh, uh, even even browser history, religious affiliation, sexual orientation, all types of, of really personal information that at one point was not considered by law uh, PII. And now in many cases it is. And so what that does is that increases the vigilance that businesses need to do to protect that type of information. And it also uh, increases the likelihood that a, uh, you know, a, a lawsuit could take place as a result of a violation of a state or federal privacy law. And I know that one thing that's that's getting a lot of attention right now in the market, particularly in the in the last year, really, is is how big an impact supply chain risk is having on coverage. Can you shed a little bit more light on that for us? Sure. So, you know, this this is a very this, where it gets hit the hardest with respect to cyber is in the contingent or dependent business interruption. So when cyber for policies first came out and they started to include business interruption coverage, it was really about a disruption to the insured's network. Okay, you have an e-commerce website, it's down for a number of hours, and as a result of your website being attacked or being down, uh, you're unable to get the revenue that you otherwise would have earned. Uh, and that's really a first-party reimbursable loss under a business interruption you know, section of a, of a typical cyber policy. But then, uh, as businesses increasingly relied on uh, technologies to help host their websites or uh, software as a service, for instance. And now we're relying upon cloud providers and things like that. You started to see uh, dependent or contingent business interruption find their way into cyber policies at full policy limits. Very difficult, certainly, to underwrite that because underwriters are not able to underwrite those dependent IT suppliers that our clients are relying upon. Uh, but nevertheless, I think in the race to competition, we saw those coverage grants expand significantly. And then they took it a step further by saying, okay, what about um, what happens if there's a supply, if there's a cyber attack on a different type of vendor that you're relying upon in order to transact your business? And while they're down from a cyber attack, you still, um, you know, experience some type of loss of revenue. This is where we get into supply chain. And so from a cyber underwriting perspective and the impact that it's having on coverage, 
is in that dependent BI, that dependent business interruption. So not only for IT suppliers, uh, but also supply chain, uh, the, the non-IT suppliers. And so, um, you know, where, so what, how that's manifesting itself in an underwriting process is additional questions in applications, even entire applications around uh, supply chain exposure are, are starting to take place. So they want to know a lot more about a business's reliance on single source vendors and their dependency on these. And so they want to know, okay, in conducting your, your business, how reliant are you on one particular uh, vendor, on one particular supplier? And what could the likelihood of you experiencing a significant loss be through dependent business interruption if there was a cyber attack on that particular vendor? Uh, and so definitely uh, what we're seeing as a result of that uh, is, is a lot more restrictions on that dependent business interruption. Some, some carriers are doing away with it altogether. Some are doing uh, much higher, uh, much lower sublimits or higher retentions. Um, so that's kind of how it's starting to work its way through uh, through that. You talked there about, you know, some providers adjusting the limits and so on. I mean, is this a little bit of a, a consequence of, of COVID as well? I mean, has that impacted insurance propositions are, are, are providers now more reluctant to take on risk or is it like you said is, is this going back to just the fact that the you know ransomware has surged and and some of these claims can be be so much bigger i mean just give us some some uh, some insight if you will as to, to how appetites have changed right and, and again i'll steer us a little bit away from covid but 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 one area i would say you know that that has certainly where covid has had an, an impact on that process is insurers are now wanting to know a lot more about the precautions that are being taken surrounding remote access to systems in general. Uh, and now, you know, since the remote working environment has expanded so dramatically as a result of working from home that, you know, as a result of COVID, uh, yeah, insurers are definitely wanting to know more about, okay, what does that landscape in your IT environment look for, look like? You know, what, uh, how are you utilizing remote desktop protocol? You know, are you utilizing just an unprotected uh, VPN or are you protecting it with multi-factor authentication? They're looking for any types of uh, endpoints and access points and how wide they are and, and dispersed and how protected they are at each, at each one of these points and how you're able to monitor those. So that's when they start getting into more questions about endpoint detection and response as well. Um, so they're going to want to know also a lot insurers that is about employee training, uh, phishing simulations, etc. Again, when employees are no longer within the confines of uh, you know an office environment where it is, I think in many cases easier to communicate, to talk about uh, threats, to have training and things like this, where the protocols are much more ingrained into the culture of your everyday work environment. And now you take that work environment into the home of, you know, hundreds, thousands, millions of employees now. Um, yeah, insurers are definitely wanting to know, all right, how is that impacting your business? What changes have you made as a result of that? Uh, and, and really centering around remote access and how you're protecting that. And, and what about brokers here? Because, um, you know, should they be concerned about a, a loss of capacity in the market? If they aren't, they should They, they should be. <laughs> um, I, we're seeing it already, uh, and we will continue to see it through the remainder of this year. Um, and really, it's a fairly simple formula, and particularly on the you know with with the Lloyd's backed uh, syndicates. Um, increased demand plus rising rates is creating a much faster burn rate on available capacity, um, and so they're they're running out of product to sell on the shelf much quicker than they anticipated because again the uptake on the insurance coverage itself has become 
much greater. The prices has increased significantly. And so uh, as a result of that, um, you know, it's interesting. Underwriters aren't as um, likely to take risks that they maybe don't feel comfortable about because they know they're going to get rate lift on their existing book. Um, and so, yeah, that's that is definitely among the biggest concerns, I think, as we go into the last uh, quarter of 2021 is how much how, how, how tighter is the availability going to be of, of even accessing coverage, particularly for those industries that are that are much more vulnerable that we had talked about before. Uh, it, it's becoming increasingly difficult, in some cases impossible to find coverage, particularly if the controls aren't in place. So in, in these circumstances, then what should brokers be telling their clients? Because presumably, you know, renewals are not going to be the same as they have been previously. So what, how can they explain that? What messages should they be putting across? Um, well, I think certainly above anything else, they want to have that in-depth discussion about cybersecurity, uh, the cybersecurity posture of the business, because what they know is already facing a really difficult market, facing capacity limitations, as you mentioned, facing tighter, um, you know, appetites with respect to industry and asking more questions and ransomware supplemental applications and all of these things. If they are presenting their, you know, as, as a retail agent, their job is to present their client in the best yet most accurate light to insurers um, so that hopefully they will compete for their coverage and get them the broadest coverage at the you know, least expensive price. Um, so you kind of start, I think, with making sure that they're aware of, you know, walk them through a ransomware supplemental application, you know, but do it three to four months before their renewal, because it could involve some changes that need to take place and often does uh, in order for them to even qualify for coverage. Um, I would just, you know, paint a very realistic picture that pricing is going to be higher. Um, if we don't start on this soon and if, and if your, you know, uh, your business doesn't look like an attractive risk to underwriters, we're not going to get you cyber coverage. It's not like it used to be. It's not three questions in a click. Here we go. Um, they're going to want to know more about, uh, again, things like remote desktop protocol, how you're utilizing that, how you're protecting it. A lot more also about not only prevention like that, but recovery. So if you do fall victim to a cyber attack, to a ransomware attack, what are your backup procedures? Um, have they, you know, are they segregated your backups from your primary network? Do you have redundancy? Have they been tested? You know, all of these types of things to make sure that, you know, if in fact you do fall victim to an attack, you're able to bounce back much quicker, that there's a lower likelihood that you would actually have to pay a ransom, things like that. But definitely uh, the market is very difficult right now. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and we've seen a number of renewals in particularly difficult classes where, you're not just seeing increases in pricing of 40% or 50%. In some cases, it's been 200%, 300% even uh, in certain classes. And at the end of it, we look at it as brokers because we see this every day. And we may say, you know what? It's still a really fair cost per million, um, you, you know, rate per million of coverage relative to the market. Uh, but that's a hard pill to swallow when you're a business that's now paying three times what they paid for before and your retention just went up two times as well at the same time. That's not that uncommon in many cases in certain industries. Yeah, and I want to ask you as well, just um, you know, this, certainly as part of our, our coverage online, it, there's been a, a lot of criticism recently of insurers around the issue of, of ransomware and, and whether the fact that insurers are willing to, to pay these ransoms is actually having a, a negative effect and is, is leading to potentially a, a spike in these incidents. Where do you stand on that issue? 
Um, I don't necessarily agree with that. Uh, I, I think insurers have been at the forefront of really pushing um, information security, improved uh, digital hygiene among businesses. Uh, I think uh, insurers are leading the push through more stringent underwriting through a process of their ransomware supplemental applications to prevent, you know, and I think the focus has become much more on prevention. Um, you know, I think if you ask a business who uh, who has been a victim of a cyber attack and had a cyber insurance policy, and because they had a cyber insurance policy, uh, they still have a business. Uh, that's what insurance is for, you know. And I, and I think I think through this combination of insurers working with their brokers, working with the insureds to, you know, raise the overall level of information security preparedness is going to be better for everyone. So no, I, I don't fall in the camp of insurers are partially to blame for this uptick. The uptick is happening because simply, um, you know, it's, it's, it's easy. They're, they're easy targets in many cases because many businesses and organizations haven't taken uh, the proper measures to secure their networks from attack. Um, and so, like any crime, the bad guys are looking for the easiest targets, the quickest payout, with the least likelihood of being caught. And they found that through, uh, through ransomware. Um, the fact that, you know, because many businesses are going to find a way to pay a ransom, whether they have insurance for it or not, uh, or organizations, certainly governments and things like this. So I think the insurance industry has actually played a really critical role and continues to and will lead the way uh, moving forward to have this start to go down. We've actually, um, you know, I've seen some reports where ransomware attacks have decreased uh, in the last, you know, 60, 90 days or so. We've seen this anecdotally. Uh, we've seen a big increase in social engineering attacks and a little bit, a little bit of a decrease in ransomware. I think it's 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 partially because uh, it's been much more the focus in the news cycle uh, and the government agencies that are really, really honing in on this. Uh, and I, I think it's so. I hesitate to say uh, that oh, we're in a downward, you know, decline. We're in a decline here in ransomware attacks because I think it's it's anecdotal and I and I believe it will turn again. Um, because again, until it's no longer profitable or doable, they're going to continue to do it. Um, so anyway, that's kind of my stance on where the insurance industry, the role that they play in this, I think it's a very positive role. I think it'll continue to be, um, the industry that really drives innovation and change, uh, and, and really helps, helps everyone in that regard. Yeah, and no, I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure there's uh, people who've been listening to this podcast really, really impressed with, with your knowledge, Steve. But tell us when you're not super focused on, on cyber, um, what do you like to do in your free time? <laughs> well, um, so I'm married. I have three kids. My oldest is a senior in high school this year. So uh, our free time is largely revolving around them. Uh, we love to go to the beach. Uh, and uh, I like to play guitar uh, for fun when I'm if, if I in, in the rare time that we have to just kind of relax at home. Uh, but uh, but yeah, those are those are kind of some of the things that I enjoy doing when I'm not working. So if I were to, to put you on the spot now and say play us out with the tune, Steve, what what uh, what what tune would you pick? Oh boy, that's a great question. Um, I don't know, Paul. You got me on that one. Um, it, it's 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 funny. Um, I was I was in a store recently and uh, and I saw a bottle of wine on the shelf and and the label of the wine was it was called ransomware. No, I'm sorry, it was called ransom. I took a picture of it. I sent a buddy of mine. I'm like, can I not get away from this? So I don't know any songs that would really have ransomware or things like that as a part of them. But so I would go completely in the opposite direction. And uh, I like David Gray. I like singer songwriters, acoustic type of things. So it would probably be a song uh, by an artist like David Gray or something like that. 
Okay, we know what to, to ask you next time around, Steve. Uh, but it's it's been a pleasure to have you with us. If, if anybody wants to, to reach out to you on the back of this podcast, how can they get in touch? Uh, sure. Um, they could uh, reach me via email at Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N underscore Robinson, R-O-B-I-N-S-O-N, at rpsins.com. Brilliant. Steve, it's, it's been fantastic to have you with us. Um, to everybody listening, it's been a pleasure to have you with us too. Uh, so we hope to catch you again next time here on IB Talk. Thank you for listening to IB Talk. For the latest episodes, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts.